That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. And on the line with us is Dr. Trudy Parsi. It's been a while since we've talked. He's a professor at Georgetown University, author most recently of Losing an Enemy, Obama, Iran, and the Triumph of Diplomacy. Trita Parsi, T-R-I-T-A-P-A-R-S-I.com is the website. You can tweet him at T-Parsi. Dr. Parsi, welcome back to the program. Thank you so much for having me. I am looking at what's going on with the situation with Iran and John Bolton and Donald Trump and the Trump administration. And two things pop out at me, and I know that you've written about these, and I'm curious if there are more than just these two that concern you. The first is the probability that by increasing sanctions and making things worse for the Iranian people, that rather than bringing down the mullahs, if they're successful in their internal media strategy at convincing people that the United States is punishing them rather than their own leadership, it'll solidify their role. And the threats of war will do that as well. And then the second is that if we cut off all these oil exports from Iran, then Iran has said in the past, if you do this, we're not going to let any oil go past the Straits of Hormuz. And if that's the case, then we're in war with Iran, are we not? Absolutely. I mean, the Iranians have been making this threat in the past that they would close the Strait of Hormuz if they cannot export their oil. Either everyone can export their oil or no one can. And I think there were good reasons to not take that too seriously, because at that point, when they were exporting their oil, if they were to do so, they would harm themselves immensely. But we're now, for the first time, looking at a scenario in which they may actually not be able to export their oil because of Trump's measure, And as a result, their threat of closing the strait needs to be taken much more seriously. Now, war games in the Pentagon have all shown the Iranians can close it, but they cannot keep it closed for more than two weeks because the U.S. military would intervene and would open it up. Mm -hmm. Uh, But that means that the U.S. military would be in direct confrontation with the Iranians in the Persian Gulf, and that means war. How would that play out, in your opinion? Well, um, based on everything we've seen, the Iranians are not going to prepare themselves for war with the U.S. in the manner that Saddam Hussein did. Mm. Saddam Hussein had a very strong standing army. A standing army of any other country, doesn't matter how strong it is, does not stand much of a chance against the U.S. U.S. is standing army. Mm -hmm. 
what can be effective against the U.S., and which is what the Iranians have been focusing on for the last 25 years, is asymmetric warfare, in which they would most likely try to inflict as much damage as possible on the U.S. in the very early stages of a war, in which they would choose the battlefield. It wouldn't be the U.S. attacking Iran. The U.S. would do so, but then the Iranians would retaliate throughout the region and not allow the U.S. to have a, a veto on where they, the fighting would take place. Now, and you... their calculation likely would be to inflict so much damage on the U.S. as possible early on in order to break the U.S.'s fighting spirit, because if there's one thing in which the Iranians likely would be able to have a, a comparative advantage vis-a-vis the United States, is that they have far less uh, casualty intolerance than what the U.S. does. You know, unwillingness to lose to lose uh, uh, soldiers, essentially, or even civilians. Yes, they have a very high tolerance for that, whereas the U.S. has a very low tolerance, particularly right. mindful of the fact that the public is not on board with this war to begin with. The American public. The American public. I mean, they're not in favor of this war. They don't even know that Trump is moving in that direction. Right. Uh, and in fact, for good reason, many of the, the people who constitute Trump's base chose him because he spoke out so strongly against the wars and was so critical of the Iraq war. But if this was to play out in the way that you're describing with asymmetric warfare, the way that the British described George Washington's asymmetric warfare was terrorism. The American soldiers were hiding behind trees and shooting the British who were coming in straight lines. If the news reports in the United States are that this proxy for the Iranians or that proxy or this group or that group or even the Iranians themselves committed these smaller acts with high levels of casualties, we'll simply call that terrorism and that would galvanize American public support for an all-out war with Iran, would it not? Well, the US and might that be what Trump is, is planning on, by the way? I personally don't think so. Let me address what you said earlier on. The U.S. will call it terrorism, or the Trump administration will call it terrorism anyways, because they've already defined the IRGC as a terrorist organization. So they will be... The, Iran, the Iranian military, basically. The, the, the Revolutionary Guard, yeah. The Revolutionary Guards, which is the strongest element of their national military. The administration will use that line. It will probably have some effect early on. But remember, even the Iraq war at the outset had 79% approval rating amongst the American public. This will not have anywhere near that. And it will have no international support except for Saudi Arabia, UAE, and Israel. So I think the longevity of the American public's favorableness towards the war will be very short. In the case of Iraq, it lasted about a year and a half. Right. And then it turned. I think this time around it will turn much quickly because it will never be above 50% to begin with. This is a war that Trump is picking. This is not a case in which there can be question marks as to whether Iran has nuclear weapons or not, as was the case with Iraq. It's very clear they don't have nuclear weapons. They're abiding by a nuclear agreement that everyone else is in favor of as well. So it will be very difficult for them to sell this war, particularly to their own base. Right. Who actually very much against these regime change wars and these foreign adventures. Wow. 
just kind of gaming this out. If, say, Iran shuts down the Straits of Hormuz, we attack them or continue to attack them. They attack us in an asymmetric way. We call that terrorism. We go to war against them. Now you've got, you know, a U.S.-Iranian conflict. But as you pointed out, there's the Saudis, there's the Israelis and the UAE who are all, you know, aggressively opposed to Iran. In fact, the Saudis are, you know, one of their claims for the reason why they're bombing the crap out of Yemen right now is that the Houthis are aligned with Iran. It seems that if those actors, if Israel, which is a nuclear power, and Saudi Arabia and the UAE were to jump into this thing, you'd have a blown up regional conflict. You've got Iranian ally, the president of Bashar al-Assad, the president of Syria. If Syria gets dragged into this thing, I mean, the Russians have an air force base and a naval port there. They're going to get in. Uh, we could be at war with Russia as a consequence of this. And it seems to me like it wouldn't necessarily be like a classic world war because Europe is going to be standing on the sidelines going, this ain't our fight. Could this lead us to a war with Russia? I think we'll have to take several steps before it gets into a war with Russia. But I think the idea that this will be a regional war that would involve many of the other countries and will involve Hezbollah and other actors is very likely. Because if there actually comes to a real military confrontation, the Iranian strategy is going to enlarge the war. Right. It's going to be to enlarge the war, because that's where they most likely have a capacity of being able to win the war, not in the sense of defeating the United States militarily, but in the sense of getting the United States to give up on the war. Right, right. Giving us enough of a bloody nose that we pull out like we did in Vietnam. So, number one, it appears that the Trump policy is trying to drive us into a war. I personally believe that Donald Trump is doing that for the same reason that in 2010, when Barack Obama was president and at the, begin at the beginning of the, the cycle for the 2012 election, Donald Trump tweeted out, expect Obama, I'm paraphrasing from memory, expect Obama to start a war somewhere soon because, you know, there's an election coming. So Donald Trump clearly knows that presidents during time of war are more easily reelected. This was something George W. Bush told his biographer in 1999, that if he got elected president, he was going to have a war with Iraq and he was going to make sure it lasted longer than his daddy's war did so he'd get reelected. Elected, and he did. So it seems to me that Trump is trying to do this as part of an election strategy. I'd love to get your thoughts on that. Um, I personally, this is my impression. I can't say that I have an insider information on this, but I actually don't think Trump himself actually wants a war. I think he is being fooled into thinking that this is an effective negotiating strategy. Mm. But, people but like Bolton, Bolton wants a war, doesn't he? I mean, Bolton's been cheerleading wars for decades. Exactly. So Trump himself doesn't want it, I think. He thinks this will bring him leverage for a, a negotiation in which the Iranians capitulate. But Bolton, Pompeo, and Brian Hook and others in the administration, the people that Trump has surrounded himself with, they do want a war. And they realize that the sanctions path and the escalation path will get them a war. It will not get them a negotiation. Wow. And, and this is where they're essentially tricking Trump into believing this. And he's not probably a terribly difficult person to trick. I don't think he calculates that this will be good for his re-election. Remember, when he was saying that back in 2010 was before he ran his own campaign. And he ran his campaign very much against the forever wars. Yeah. And he knows that he has a lot of support in the public when he says those things, when he's critical of Iraq. He may not change his mind and actually try to play that card. It could very well happen. To what extent do you think it's possible that Trump might back away from that? How does this play out if Trump and his advisors are at odds on this? In Syria, we saw that once he kind of got 
suspicious of what they were doing, he moved quickly and said, we're going to withdraw Syria. But then we also saw that Pompeo and Bolton were successful in walking that back. So, I mean, that's part of the problem that exists right now, that there are, there's a president that has instincts that are suspicious of war, suspicious of regime change, but he has surrounded himself with neoconservative advisors who are just taking advantage of him and who are constantly pushing for much, much more bellicose policies under his nose. Yeah, this is a a remarkable issue that is not getting anything close to the attention that it should be in the American press. It it just shocks me that it's not. Dr. Trita Parsi, uh, professor at Georgetown University. Thank you so much for being with us, sir. Great talking with you. His most recent book, Losing an Enemy, Obama, Iran, and the Triumph of Diplomacy. Tom Hartman here with you. A lot on the table. We've been talking about war with Iran. Your thoughts on that, the possibility. How, what can we do to stop Trump from, from doing this? I mean, he, he clearly seems to be setting on that path. Albert in Festus, Missouri. Hey, Albert, what's on your mind today? Thanks for watching Free Speech. Yes, thank you, Tom. You know, everybody sees the storm crowds brewing about war in Iran. And I think that if they keep pushing this, we're going to drive Iran into the hands of China. I agree. I agree. And they're already on the edge of of an alliance with Russia. Well, well, they already got deals with Russia, but they can't send their oil to them because we sanction in Russia. Of course, Trump's going to let it go through. So the next logical person to get that oil would be China, who needs all they can get. And here it is being handed to them on a plate. The two countries right now that are receiving the majority of the Iranian oil exports are China and India. And, you know, India's got Modi running it. Uh, Modi is a right wing guy who wants to be a dictator, although he's facing some electoral problems. But I think he's going to pull through. And China, of course, is not a democracy. It's, you know, it's a communist dictatorship. And both of them can, you know, relatively turn on a dime. It's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. But I think you're absolutely right, Albert. This could realign a lot of international politics and push us into a very, very tight corner. Yep. Yeah, we, we, we've been squeezed out. Yeah. That's what's going partic- to happen. We're going to get squeezed out. Yeah, particularly without the help of Europe, because Europe, right. you know, the European countries are all, hey, yeah, and Russia, by the way, and China, you know, hey, we cut this deal with Iran where they wouldn't develop nuclear weapons. They've been keeping the deal. We're not going to we're not going to blow this thing up. Yeah. Albert, spot on. Thank you very much for the call. Donald in Aurora, Illinois. This war thing that I'm worried about, you know, if I recall, both Bushes got us into wars. Yes. Because they were having experience problems getting in uh, so they could return to the Oval Office. Well, I think that's what this guy is doing it for. I for think so, too. reasons. And I think so, too. That, it's the same reason Ronald Reagan did his little war with Grenada. It's the same reason Maggie Thatcher had a war with the Falklands. Frankly, I think it's the same reason that in the election of 72, Richard Nixon prolonged the war. Oh, yeah. And what really gets me, Tom, all my fellow veterans, they should be screaming out about this stuff. Yeah. They're not nowhere to be found. When we got out, we were screaming about the Vietnam War. They should be screaming about putting us in yet another needless war that God only knows could lead us into World War III. So what I say, and I've said it many times, start the draft. You'll yeah. see how fast these people will drop that flag when their kids have to go pick up a rifle and go die in another country for a needless war. I agree, Donald. And isn't it interesting that John Bolton and Mike Pompeo and Donald Trump, all the guys who are pushing for war, they were all draft dodgers back in the 60s. 
Exactly. I was just going to say that. Yeah. 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 These chicken hawks. I mean, God save us from the chicken hawks. Doug Fife, Elliot Abrams, all of them were chicken hawks. Dick Cheney, every single one of them. Donald, thank you for the call. If you're like me, then safeguarding your money through market downturns is a clear priority. And frankly, we've seen enough market volatility to make any investor nervous. For people like us who think outside the box and read between the lines, it's becoming even more clear that the insider secret of accumulating physical gold is becoming a lot less of a secret and more of a trend. According to the World Gold Council, in 2018 alone, central bank gold purchases increased by over 74%. The bottom line is that we are starting to see the cracks forming in our economy. And the faster you take action, the better your opportunity. There's only one company I personally recommend in this industry, and that's the expert strategists at ITM Trading. They specialize in wealth protection and opportunity positioning. Both, as you know, are imperative in our current economic climate. Call my friends at ITM Trading at one own gold Ask for their free gold protection guide and hedge your bets like the top 1% do. Call one Triple eight own gold. That's one eight 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 O W N G O L D. One triple eight own gold. Dr. Richard Wolf is back with us, the economist, co-founder of Democracy at Work, the author most recently of Capitalism's Crisis Deepens, essays on the global economic meltdown, his website, democracyatwork.info, and rdwolf with two Fs, dot com. His Twitter handle is uh, profwolf, P-R-O-F, as in Professor Wolf, W-O-L-F-F, as in Wolf. And Dr. Wolf, welcome back. Thank you, Tom. Glad to be here. Thank you for joining us. I don't recall if it was last week or the week before, we were talking about what is the Fed, where did it come from, what job does it do, why should we care, how does it affect me. We are now seeing with the nomination of Herman Cain or the announcement of the nomination of Herman Cain and Stephen Moore and now the withdrawal of Herman Cain and Trump looking around for apparently somebody even crazier than that. And Stephen Moore, yes, yesterday said, well, if I become a political problem for the president, I'll withdraw my name. You know, and uh, who knows where this is going to go. But it's clear that Trump is hell-bent on politicizing the Fed. I don't know if it's apocryphal or not. I believe it's a true story that back in the 1960s, when Lyndon Johnson, in the late 60s, when Lyndon Johnson was president, he brought Mr. Miller, who was then the chair of the Fed, into the Oval Office and literally walked him up to the wall, grabbed him by the tie, lifted him up on his tippy toes, slammed his head against the wall and said, you will lower interest rates. And Mr. Miller, uh, Fed Chair Miller said, no, I won't. And he didn't. And you know, LBJ hated him for it, but he couldn't do anything about it. I mean, has there ever been a time, first of all, is that story true? And whether it is or it isn't, has there ever been a time in our past, in this nation's history, when the Fed chair, or when the banking system more broadly, since the Fed's only been around since 1913, um, has been as politicized as Donald Trump is doing right now? Well, I don't know if that story is true. I don't know if you'll ever be able to nail that down one way or the other. I can tell you an answer to your second question, that the sitting president always has an interest in manipulating the money system of the country because it shapes how successful the economy is and that in turn will shape how people look at any given president so it was precisely because politicians among other things intervened to manipulate the monetary system not for the long-term benefit of the economy but for the short-term election that they were facing a year or two later that the Federal Reserve was created as most central banks have been. It is too dangerous 
in a capitalist economy to leave the monetary system completely in the hands of capitalist banks. That's the ironic discovery of 200 years of capitalism. So everywhere you try to give the monetary authorities, the people who control the quantity of money in circulation, the people who set interest rates, you try to put them at an arm's length remove from the political system, not because of some abstract notion of appropriate economics, but out of a sense of the danger of not doing that. And the reason is precisely that, for example, to use Mr. Trump, he needs to win re-election in 2020. He wants a booming economy. So he wants low interest rates so that there's lots of money flowing into the economy. Everybody can borrow at low interest rates. That this in the long run is extremely dangerous to the economy is a matter of absolutely no concern because for him, if he can't get reelected, he's out of the game anyway. That's precisely the problem. Now, in the past, Presidents have known that they're supposed to, at least on the surface, observe the independence of the Fed, not to do the kind of thing that you just related in the story of Lyndon Johnson, or the kind of thing that Mr. Trump is doing. But since Mr. Trump's career has been going further in the direction of what the most right-wing Republicans in the past have proceeded to do and to outdo them, well, he's now doing it again by literally playing a game as if the ups and downs of the economy, whenever they're not to his liking, are the fault of the Fed. And whenever the economy is doing well, well, he pats himself on the back and says it's his doing. It's childish, it's silly, but it's the way the game is going to be played under Mr. Trump's rules. Do you think that it's possible that or probable or the fact or whatever that when Donald Trump went on a public rampage against the current Fed share, public rampage against him, that Powell immediately backed down and started lowering interest rates and changing his tune and all that. Is it possible that that was influenced not so much by the state of the economy as it was by political pressure from Trump? And if so, what does that tell us for the future? And let me put this in a larger frame, if I could. President Erdogan of Turkey, apparently a year or so ago, when he was up for re-election, leaned very, very heavily, or earlier this year, perhaps, I don't, I'm not sure exactly when it was, but I remember reading this in the Financial Times, leaned very heavily on his Fed chair and basically you know, flooded the market with lira or the loose credit and trying to goose his economy, one of the outcomes of that was the beginning of some rather consequential inflation. Correct me if I'm wrong on this. Is that not the kind of thing that we're trying to avoid? Absolutely. And the story about uh, Turkey is exactly correct. That is what he did. That is precisely what he's not supposed to do in the short run, even though he was defeated in the two major cities of uh, Turkey, Ankara and Istanbul, very important defeats. He was nonetheless able to win the election on the national level, which again is all he cared about. The long-term damage, which is severe to the confidence of the world in doing business with Turkey, is simply not the way local short-term politics works. On the case of the United States, here's what happened. Absolutely, Mr. Trump's interference and the threats against Mr. Powell and blaming of Mr. Powell no doubt had an effect. But there was a deeper cause operating at the same time. 
the American economy was turning down. The last four months of uh, 2018 were an extreme slowdown of the American economy. One, by the way, that is continuing. The only thing that has really turned up so far is the stock market. Why? Because they stopped raising interest rates. But that was done not only because Mr. Trump wants to win re-election, but because the Federal Reserve got frightened that the downturn of the economy could spin out of control. Then you add the amount of extra money that the Fed itself has pumped in since 2008, and you have a very dangerous cocktail being mixed here. They got frightened, and between that and the Trump pressure, they stopped raising interest rates and are now actually talking about lowering them. The long-term danger there is an out-of-control inflation waiting to happen. We hope it doesn't, but it could. The prudent step would be to take steps now to stop it, but that prudent step is blocked by the combination of pressure from Trump and a weak underlying economy, uh, and that's a real serious conundrum for us. I was reading an investment newsletter this morning that's by Aiden Forecast, one of our sponsors, or in the past, one of our sponsors, suggesting that because the Fed has gone down in interest rates and because this is now spreading worldwide, basically all these economies that have adopted neoliberal economic policies from Japan to the European Central Bank, the Japanese Central Bank, the U.S. Central Bank, he identified three or four others. I don't remember what they were right off the top of my head. Um, I believe the British Central Bank. They are all now talking about lowering interest rates. And his takeaway was, therefore, now is a great time to buy into the stock market because there's at least a year and a half or two years. All of these countries have major elections coming up within the next 24 months. There's going to be another couple of years where they're just going to continuously be goosing the stock market because all these politicians want to get reelected. What do you think about that? Absolutely correct. And it, it reminds me in this day and age of the famous remark made by the last of the great Louis that were kings of France before the French Revolution ended the French monarchy. He's famous for having said, sure, I'm goosing everything. Sure, I'm living high off the hog and all the rest. And then the famous line, après moi le déluge, which means in English, after me comes the disaster. That's what all of them are doing there. It's a crazy political system erected by a capitalist economy that puts in place people with enormous power, our leading politicians, with very short-term objectives of staying in power, which leads them, not surprisingly, to make decisions that are good for them in the short run and are a disaster for those of us who have to live in the longer run, even them included. It's a dysfunctional political arrangement on top of an economy that is deeply unstable. And to imagine that this is not all going to come to a head in a very, very hurtful way is wishful thinking of the worst sort. Dr. Wolf, thank you so much for being with us today. My pleasure, Tom. Look forward to talking to you again. Me too. I look forward to next week. I, I truly appreciate you dropping by so frequently with us. This is the Tom Hartman Program. For the Tom Hartman Book Club, our book today is How Wealth Rules the World, Saving Our Communities and Freedoms from the Dictatorship of Property by Ben G. Price, uh, with a blurb on the back from some guy named Tom Hartman. This is from the introduction, One Right to Rule Them All, The Dark Side of Property. 
Let's get it out in the open. The United States of America, nations that emulate its governing principles, are governed by a dictatorship of property. Is that plutocracy? Sure, but it goes deeper than that. The U.S. Constitution, as it was written and later interpreted by the Supreme Court, hijacked democratic rights that American revolutionaries thought they had won. The Federalists developed a whole system of law that serves the interests of wealth. Elements of that system include the following. State constitutions untethered from their revolutionary moorings, international trade agreements that supersede local, state, and federal laws, regulations administered by an unrepresentative bureaucracy, political parties that gerrymander legislative districts so that they can choose their voters rather than allowing voters to choose their representatives, corporate property that the Supreme Court has declared to be persons with Bill of Rights protections, federal and state statutes that privatize public governance and prohibit democratic limits on the uses of private fortunes, and local governments declared to be property of the state and made unavailable to communities for municipal lawmaking. We live deep within an undemocratic matrix of law that masquerades as a democratic republic while it legalizes an aristocracy of wealth. The U.S. Constitution was written by men who came from a uniformly privileged class. Charles Beard argued this point in his book, An Economic Interpretation of the Constitution of the United States. Beard analyzed the economic interests of those who met in secret to overturn the Articles of Confederation and concluded that the Federalists were motivated by economic self-interest to establish a form of government that would protect their wealth against an excess of democracy, as Alexander Hamilton put it. The Federalists who replaced the Articles with the U.S. Constitution were not fully aligned with the liberating agenda of commoners who risked their lives to throw off the hierarchical chains of Great Britain. They were wealthy men educated in British law with opinions that harmonized with aristocratic sentiments. The authors of the U.S. Constitution are often called the Founding Fathers. Popular history lumps the Federalist counter-revolutionaries in with the likes of Thomas Paine, who with this firebrand writings against monarchy, nobility, and special privilege for the few, inspired the people to demand independence. Popular culture counts the Federalists as American revolutionaries no less fervent for liberty than the men whose ideas of leveling the social class system inspired American farmers and day laborers to pick up their muskets and take on the redcoats. This conflation of the Federalist counter-revolutionaries with those whose spirit of 76 is reflected in the Declaration of Independence and absent from the U.S. Constitution is a troubling reminder that popular history too often preserves false memories. What's the evidence that the Federalists intended a Constitution that weaponizes law to protect the accumulation of property and raise wealth and out of reach of public governance? Well, to begin with, their own words were recorded in Philadelphia in 1787 by James Madison and Robert Yates. Damningly, that record had, was held secret until every delegate to the clandestine conclave had died and the Constitution they wrote had been the law of the land for two generations. We have that evidence, and it tells the tale I'll share in Chapter 2. We also have the product of their cleverness to consider. The Federalists established a quasi-monarchical judiciary. Politically appointed judges wielded the power to veto any legislation that departs from the Federalists' original intent to protect wealthy accumulation from democratic oversight. We have the arguments of the anti-federalists who called out the would-be American aristocrats for betraying the revolution. If not for them, we would not have the first 10 amendments to the federalist document, the Bill of Rights, which many identify as the soul of the U.S. Constitution. More immediate evidence that the original intent of the U.S. Constitution was to immunize possession of unearned property from public regulation can be found in the antisocial way the document is interpreted by the courts and how it operates on society today. Here's my argument in a nutshell. 
We are faced with social, political, and environmental problems that resist resolution because law empowers a wealthy minority to govern based on priorities often at odds with the general welfare. The Constitution and its interpretation by the courts amounts to an arsenal of weaponized law able to deliver special privileges to a propertied class. Certain legal mechanisms let those seeking to profit at the public expense block policies that compete with their interests. These legal doctrines operate by a two-step process. First, they remove democratic rights from the public sphere and deposit them in concentrated accumulations of property. The oddity of attaching legal rights to property itself rather than to people roared into public consciousness with the Supreme Court's 2010 Citizens United ruling that affirmed corporate property's personhood and free speech rights. Although the ruling shocked the conscience of average Americans, it was not the first time the court had vested civil rights within inert property. Nor were corporations the first type of property to be given legal rights. The second step is for property imbued with rights to deliver those rights as an extra layer of legal privilege to the property owner. When civil and human rights are deposited in property, that property is placed beyond the authority of the people to govern how it is used by its owner. This nullifies the majority's ability to decide directly or through elected representatives what public policy will be. As a result, we aren't allowed to resolve issues of immediate concern to every community. Even when we understand what needs to be done, we're often blocked. And then he goes through the whole list. Benji Price writes, How Wealth Rules the World. Does your current office chair support you? I mean, if you're lucky, maybe it goes up and down, but can you sit in it for hours before it becomes uncomfortable? You know, I, I broke my back skydiving back when I was 20 years old, and finding a good chair has been a lifelong struggle. The X chair has this dynamic variable lumbar support. They call it DVL. The X chair's DVL was designed to adjust to you, and every other part of the chair can be custom adjusted to fit you. That's why the X chair is equally supportive, whether you're 5'2 and 110 or 6'4 and 250. And now with the introduction of the X basic model, there's an X chair for every body type and every budget. Take advantage of X-Chair's new financing option and pay as little as 30 bucks a month. Take your comfort and productivity to the next level for less than the cost of a daily cup of coffee. X-Chair's on sale now for $100 off. Just go to xchairtom.com or call 1-844-4X-Chair. X-Chair comes with a 30-day, no questions asked guarantee of complete satisfaction. Go to xchairtom.com now and use the code XWHEELS and you'll receive a free set of the new X-Wheels with your chair xchairtom.com. Welcome back. Tom Harmon here with you. Let's check in with Geeky Science for a moment here. Our Geeky Science alert. There's good news and bad news. The good news is that they have found that there are two bacteria, two kinds of microbes, Caprocus and Dialaster, that when they are absent from your gut flora, from the bacteria that live in your intestines, when they're missing, people are more likely to get depressed. These, these two kinds of bacteria apparently produce proteins that trigger the release of dopamine, which is the feel-good molecule. Uh, high levels of dopamine are produced by doing things like crack cocaine, you know. Bacteria are producing very low levels of it, but it's still making people feel happy. And so people are depressed, apparently, from this dysregulation of their intestinal flora. That's the good news, that we now know this, and this seems to be a big thing. And if we could fix this, it would probably eliminate a lot of suicides and things like that. That's the good news. The bad news is that if you uh, go looking to buy some Caprocus or Dialaster bacteria, 
you can't find it anywhere. It's, you know, these are not bacteria that are famous like uh, Acidophilus or uh, Ruteri or something like that. And uh, so right now, there's no way to quickly get this stuff back in your system. Anyhow, Doug in Carlton, Washington. Hey, Doug, what's on your mind? I got a chance with my wife to travel through the Southwest, Arizona, Southern California, that all winter long. Yep. I am not afraid to approach people and talk to them and such. And what I found is that they don't know about socialism. They don't understand, and it's such a negative term to them. Mm -hmm. I'm feeling like the Democratic Party should just, they really have to zero in on that because people don't understand. It's only going to be an issue, Doug. And I always bring up the commons. Yeah. and ask them what would they do with the commons. Doug, socialism is only going to be an issue if Bernie is the candidate, and that's up in the air right now. So I'm not so concerned about that, number one. And number two, this whole, you know, I hate socialism stuff is largely isolated to people who are over 40 or 50 years old. John, thanks for the call. Doug in Fort Collins, Colorado. Hey, Doug, thanks for watching us on YouTube. What's up? I find some hypocrisy here when they go, we have to cut funding to Planned Parenthood because even though the money is like fungible, it goes towards abortion, so we have to stop that. But we give lots of money to Israel, and they have government paid for abortion. That's correct. Abortion's legal over there, and it's like single payer. The government's paying for it. So I really got to kind of question why we would give money to a country like that. And if you're worried about the fetuses... How many people, how many children have we killed and expecting mothers over in Yemen? Yes. It's a bunch of hypocrisy. Yeah. And that's really what I wanted to say. There are literally millions of people facing starvation in Yemen, most of them children, as a consequence of this brutal, brutal war. Yeah, the, the, the Saudi Arabia has declared against them that we have been supporting. And that Trump just vetoed a resolution that passed both the House and the Senate with Democrats and Republicans saying no more money, no more weapons to Saudi Arabia. And his veto can't be over, I overturned. I believe Bernie actually sponsored that bill. Yeah. Oh, really? I didn't know that. It, it wouldn't surprise me because he's been all over this, this issue with the Saudis forever. Doug, thank you for the call. Ellen in Crozet, Virginia. Am I saying that right, Ellen? Crozet. Crozet. Okay. What's up? Crozet. Well, you know, I'm a reporter here in Charlottesville, and I have a friend, and she ended a relationship. She was my boss as a teenager in a family business, church youth leader. I became an adult, and we were friends like sisters for more than three decades. I'm going to give an, a conservative estimate of 35. It may have been more. And she met someone online, and through that relationship, which was not great, she got turned on to Fox. Now, I knew she was a Republican, but she wasn't adamant about anything. We never talked anything about politics. Mm-hmm. But then she met him, and she started to spout everything that you would expect And there started to be some tensions when we would speak. For example, she came to visit. I learned a neighbor, a couple was going to teach abroad. And they'd mentioned it, but they didn't say anything about through whom. And it was through a faith organization. I said, oh, that's wonderful. I'm a big fan of Mennonite Central Committee. And I'm trying not to get emotional. And, you know, she said out of nowhere, I'm not liberal like her. I'm like, I didn't even say anything about liberal. I just said that I like the organization because it's not evangelical. They serve they don't preach their faith, but they serve because of it. And all of a sudden, she's distancing herself from me, things like that. Over time, I say nothing. I've got a big mouth, but I held my tongue. Until, well, one day out of nowhere, she wanted to tell me that 
what she, how she felt about homosexuality, and she went on and on on a rampage for about five minutes, and I'm like, this is not the person I knew. Wow. But I didn't say anything. Then we had a conversation post-August 12th, and it was the day that he went off the script, and it turned into a debacle. That he being who? Members, Trump? Uh, he being Trump, excuse uh-huh. me, yes. He spoke on the day of, and then he spoke a few days after, and it was the morning of the fateful second day where he went off script. Where Later she ended the friendship, but on that day, a few days after August 12th, I said to her, you know what, this town is furious at the president. If he came into this town, I don't know if he'd come out alive, because they were so angry. Oh, this was the Charlottesville event, the the very fine people event that you're talking about. I'm sorry. Oh, yeah, yeah, they're great. They're great on both sides. And I know how angry they were, because I'd covered the accident where Heather Heyer was killed. They hadn't taken all the people away yet. Then they rerouted us because it was a crime scene. We went into, I was with my intern, we went into a craft brewery where people were gathered watching CNN talking about Charlottesville. They're waiting to hear the president and what he has to say. And when he came out and said what he had to say, the crowd went wild. They would have chewed him to the bone if he had been in that room and said that. And I commented, I might have been more emotional than I would be during a newscast, but I told an objectable truth that Charlottesville hated the way the president had dealt with that. I have to go now. And then after a month or two, she wasn't answering my calls. She wouldn't answer my texts. We were friends about three hours away. My hometown, I'm up here. And long short, she broke up with me by way of text. Mm -hmm. She ended a 35-plus year relationship. As soon as she started to watch Fox regularly, things started to change. And I just... I've disagreed with her on many things, and I just let it go because I loved her. Mm-hmm. And um, it just, it changed her. It's, it changed her. It is so sad. I have a, an old friend, uh, Hilly is his first name, Hillel, who used to work with Ted Patrick, who was the famous cult programmer back in the 60s and 70s, where they would literally kidnap kids back from the Moonies and, and, uh, mm-hmm. and whatnot and deprogram them and you know, restore them, return them to their families. And Hilly really helped me understand the cult aspect of this. And I swear, Ellen, when I talk to regular Fox News viewers, it is just like talking to cult members back in the 60s and 70s. They literally live in an alternative universe. Ellen, I got to move on. We can do no wrong. Yeah. I think what upset her is that she hated him before the nomination. She hated him. I think she's angry that he was elected and she's just doesn't want to admit oh, it. Oh, I'm guessing there's all, there's all kinds of, of dissonance going on inside her head. Ellen, thank you for the call, yeah. and thanks for sharing your story with us. That's extraordinary. Pam in Milford, Maine, watching us on Free Speech TV. Hey, Pam, what's up? I think this stuff all started with the tea party, because my brother kind of became too nasty for him. He wasn't a nasty kind of person, and um, his wife recorded all the Glenn Beck shows back when he was... Uh, flying high, and mm-hmm. I watched a couple of those Glenn Beck shows, and he was scary. Mm-hmm. His stuff scary. He was scary. I think he was inciting violence. You know, I mean. Oh, there was a uh, guy who who was uh, going up to assassinate the people at the Tides Foundation. He was a Glenn Beck follower, and the state police in California stopped him, and he put something like a hundred bullets in their cars before they oh, were able to stop this guy. Oh my gosh! Oh, it's terrible. Uh, <laughs> So um, the connection with the Tea Party is important because I think now it's called the Freedom Caucus, right? Right. The Tea Party was funded by the Koch brothers. The Koch brothers also fund the members of the Freedom Caucus. And, of course, they've got their organization called Freedom Works. Yeah. It's a sad state of affairs.
Yeah, yeah, it truly is. It really and truly is. Pam, thank you for sharing your story with us. It's great to hear from you. Maine in Chicago. Hey, Maine, thanks for listening to Chicago's Progressive Talk. What's on your mind? You know, you're talking about uh, issues for Biden, uh, what he may run on. And one of the issues I feel that, uh, that, that would really get him almost two feet in the White House, and that's ending trickle-down voodoo, regal economics. Amen. If, yeah, yeah if, I'm with you. Yeah, for nearly 40 years now, we've been under this trickle-down economy. And I thought Obama would do it, but he didn't. So that was one of my greatest disappointments, that he didn't end trickle-down and say we're going to come from the bottom and out the middle. And if uh, Biden does that or any one of those... I was talking about trickle-down economics. Yeah. And, and this is something that the Republicans started. This was Ronald Reagan's thing. And both of our Democratic presidents since Reagan have just kind of gone along with. And it's something that Donald Trump, by the way, promised to blow up, remember? As did Bernie Sanders. Main thank you for the call. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. I think it's fairly obvious if Donald Trump can get elected on a platform of blowing up neoliberalism, even though he was lying through his teeth, so can a Democrat. Tom Harbin here. You know, we've been talking on this program for years now about the benefits of CBD. And I just in the last few months discovered New Leaf Naturals CBD oil. It is the premium organic, highly concentrated pure CBD oil. CBD oil is non-intoxicating, which makes it ideal for people seeking the health benefits of cannabinoids without the mind-altering effects of medical marijuana. CBD is non-toxic and has potent pain-relieving and anti-inflammatory properties. The brand I trust the most is New Leaf Naturals. New Leaf Naturals is the highest quality CBD oil on the market. It's 100% organic, highly concentrated, contains no additional additives, is grown in the United States, and the only ingredient is hemp. So the product remains in its most pure and simple form. Go to newleafnaturals.com. That's n-u-leafnaturals.com. Save 30% off and receive free shipping in the U.S. when you use the code TOM, T-H-O-M. Go to n-u-leafnaturals.com. For premium cannabinoid wellness, there's only one place, newleafnaturals.com. John in Kansas City, Missouri. Hey, John, what's on your mind today? Well, three things are on my mind today, Tom, and the first is mail-in voting, repeal of Glass-Steagall, and Medicare for All. For mail-in voting, I've lived in Washington State, now I live here in the state of Missouri. We have been attacked. We're not just going up against Republicans in this election. We're going up against Republicans, Russians, Saudi Arabia, possibly Israel. So I am... Wherefore, vote by mail, right. <laughs> because the ballot box is the post office. Right. Oh, it's it works not, wonderfully. Not, I, you know, I live in Oregon. You don't exactly. need to. Yeah. Exactly. So the chances of uh, ballots being stolen, you won't find in the back of somebody's car. Right. Like, we, like we've seen in North Carolina. Yep. All right. Second is Glass-Steagall. That was the worst piece of legislation ever. <laughs> ever. Glass-Steagall? Wait a minute. Glass-Steagall said... Glass-Steagall said that a checkbook bank can't be a gambling bank, and a gambling bank can't be a checkbook bank. It protected the American banking system from 1933 until, uh, I think it was 1999 or 2000 it was repealed. Exactly, exactly. And because of that, that's why we've had the banking crash. I truly feel it. Because it was repealed. 
Exactly. Because it was repealed, we need to put that back in. Oh, okay. I want that to be the Democratic platform. Yes. Well, and Elizabeth Warren is certainly running on that. I'm not sure the position of anybody exactly. else. I know Bernie is in favor right. of bringing it back, too. He's been, he talked about that in this program for 11 years. Right. We have to do that. And my last point is the Medicare for All. Now, hear me on this. I get my medical from the VA and also from my job. Basically, it's a public option. All right? Right. I get great care from the VA. I'm a cancer survivor. I didn't have to pay for the medication, this, that, or the other. The one thing I've always thought about Medicare was ever since I was paying into it since I was 16 years old, that's the only insurance that you pay for that you can't use until you got one foot in the grave. That never made sense to me. Yeah. I would rather pay twice, you know, take that out of my, so I could get into Medicare. That way it will cover the senior citizens who are on it yeah. right now. But I would rather pay, take the money that I'm giving to these private health care <laughs> uh, people, which right. really don't give you nothing and pay twice for Medicare. Right, pay that in taxes. I can get yeah. in it. Robert Ball was the guy who wrote the Medicare bill, or at least uh, back in the back in 1965 for Lyndon Johnson, or at least wrote most of it. And he's on the record. I wrote about this in one of my books. I'm pretty sure it was Rebooting the American Dream, but it might have been screwed. But I have some extensive quotes from him. And he came right out and said, at the time, now, he didn't say it to the newspapers, but he said it to enough of his colleagues that it got reported in the newspapers. He said, we're putting together a piece of legislation which we're selling and we'll get the Republicans to support by saying that we're going to save the health insurance companies money by taking their most expensive patients, people over 65, and having the government cover their cost. And in fact, that's how it worked out. The health insurance companies actually supported the passage of Medicare, which is why it passed, because it raised their profits. Then he said, now, once we get that into place, the next step is to lower the eligibility age by a decade every year over a seven-year period, and we will have covered everybody in America. And Lyndon Johnson was all on board with that, that Medicare was over time, and they figured it would probably take a decade or so, the, the American people would realize how well it worked and everybody would want to have it. And so they just start lowering the eligibility age as they were expanding the size of the Medicare, the people who work for Medicare who could process claims and things, they would have to ramp up. This is why Bernie's Medicare for All has a four-year phase, and you can't just do this overnight. And, you know, Robert Ball was like, this is the way to do it. And spot on. John, thank you very much for the call. Laura in Linwood, Washington. Hey, Laura, what's on your mind today? Thanks for watching Free Speech. Hi. I love Medicare. I think it's wonderful. Uh, right now, 80% is covered, and we buy insurance for 20%. Under Bernie's plan, that 20% copay goes away. It's just 100% coverage. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, okay. I, I love agree. Bernie anyway. You know that and Elizabeth, yeah. my yeah. two favorite people. Yeah. All right, and you're my third favorite person. Oh, bless you, Laura. <laughs> Laura, <laughs> thanks a lot for the call. It's great to hear from you. David in Chicago. Hey, David, what's up? I was listening to the earlier segment about Trump saying that the Supreme Court, he would go to the Supreme Court to have them intervene in the impeachment. Right, if the House uh, impeaches him, yes. But constitutionally he can't. Lawrence Tribe actually said already today that that was idiocy. But Tribe, you know, is a constitutional scholar, Harvard professor. Right. Uh, the Constitution's quite clear. The courts have no role in impeachment. 
Right. Now, they can have a role in related issues like executive privilege, ruling on whether that's applicable, and, 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 and probably on some of the subpoenas. You know, they ruled against Clinton in his impeachment, and they ruled against Nixon in, in his impeachment hearings yep. when they tried to use executive privilege. So even these guys... I mean, if they really are originalists or textualists, right? They're not. I mean, That's just a scam, David. That, that whole originalist thing is no, a scam. Of course, I understand that. And Roberts is an institutionalist. But, you know, you only need one of the Republicans. Uh, and Roberts certainly is, has, has spoken out. He's no fan of uh, the president. Okay. And uh, he is an establishment guy, and he is an institutionalist, and you only need one of the uh, at the moment at the moment god god forbid something should happen to one of the other four democratic nominees and yes, ruth bader ginsburg forbid, is hanging no on but if one of the other four democratic appointees was to have to leave the bench for whatever reason your death infirmity whatever and donald trump got to appoint another then he'd have six right-wing crazies on the court and john roberts wouldn't be able to stop them that was my point well not just for the impeachment, but for, anything. for all legislation. For anything, right. I mean, you know, they, they, you would have a court that would be back like the Owens court during the early years of the Franklin Roosevelt administration. It wasn't until 1937 that the court started going along with, with FDR. They struck down piece after piece after piece of the New Deal. And when the stakes got really high in 37, when they literally had long-term unemployment insurance and Social Security on the docket, and they were going to determine whether to strike those things down, that was the point at which FDR threatened them, and they backed down. And oddly enough, one of the justices who backed down was Justice Roberts back in the 30s, but Owens was the chief justice. But I'm very concerned about this. I'm also concerned about the fact that on some of these issues, the court may rule against Trump and Trump may ignore the court's ruling. I mean, his hero, Andrew Jackson, did that twice. He did that with the Trail of Tears and he did that with the Second National Bank of the United States. He simply ignored what the Supreme Court said and broke the law for the rest of his presidency. Abraham Lincoln did it once, although the circumstances were quite different. That was, you know, the Civil War. But this is something that, you know, I think people need to be paying attention to. And the Democrats need to get ready for what happens if Trump says, OK, you know, the Supreme Court ruled against me. Screw them. I'm just going to keep on doing what I'm doing. We're going to continue, you know, snatching kids at the border and putting them in cages or whatever it may be. Right. Uh, you know, we're going to continue with this crazy war. We're, you know, fill in the blanks. We're going to keep on doing something that the Supreme Court says we can't. How will the Democrats respond? This is the Tom Hartman Program. We're reading today from Robert Mueller, the special prosecutor's report to the Justice Department about the Russian interference in the election and Donald Trump's role in it. This is from the introduction to volume one, page one. The Russian government interfered in the 2016 presidential election in sweeping and systematic fashion. Evidence of Russian government operations began to surface in mid-2016. In June, the Democratic National Committee and its cyber response team publicly announced that Russian hackers had compromised its computer network. Releases of hacked materials, hacks that public reporting soon attributed to the Russian government, began that same month. Additional releases followed in July through the organization WikiLeaks, with further releases in October and November. In late July 2016, soon after WikiLeaks' first release of stolen documents, a foreign government contacted the FBI about a May 2016 encounter with Trump campaign foreign policy advisor George Papadopoulos. 
Papadopoulos had suggested to a representative of that foreign government that the Trump campaign had received indications from the Russian government that it could assist the campaign through the anonymous release of information damaging to Democratic presidential candidate Hillary Clinton. That information prompted the FBI on July 31, 2016, to open an investigation into whether individuals associated with the Trump campaign were coordinating with the Russian government in its interference activities. That fall, two federal agencies jointly announced that the Russian government, quote, directed recent compromises of emails from U.S. persons and institutions, including U.S. political organizations, and these thefts and disclosures are intended to interfere with the U.S. election process, end quote. After the election in late December 2016, the United States imposed sanctions on Russia for having interfered in the election. By early 2017, several congressional committees were examining Russia's interference in the election. Within the executive branch, these investigatory efforts ultimately led to the May 2017 appointment of Special Counsel Robert S. Mueller III. The order appointing the Special Counsel authorized him to investigate, quote, the Russian government's efforts to interfere in the 2016 presidential election, end quote, including any links or coordination between the Russian government and individuals associated with the Trump campaign. As set forth in detail in this report, the special counsel's investigation established that Russia interfered in the 2016 presidential election principally through two operations. First, a Russian entity carried out a social media campaign that favored presidential candidate Donald J. Trump and disparaged presidential candidate Hillary Clinton. Second, a Russian intelligence service conducted counter-intrusion operations against entities, employees, and volunteers working on the Clinton campaign and then released stolen documents. The investigation also identified numerous links between the Russian government and the Trump campaign. Although the investigation established that the Russian government perceived it would benefit from a Trump presidency and worked to secure that outcome, and that the campaign expected it would benefit electorally from information stolen and released through Russian efforts, the investigation did not establish that members of the Trump campaign conspired or coordinated with the Russian government in its election interference activities. Below, we describe the evidentiary considerations underpinning statements about the results of our investigation and the special counsel's charging decisions. We then provide an overview of the two volumes of our report. The report describes actions and events at the special counsel's office found to be supported by the evidence collected in our investigation. In some instances, the report points out the absence of evidence or conflicts in the evidence about a particular fact or event. In other instances, when substantial, credible evidence enabled the office to reach the conclusion with confidence. Where that happened, the report states that the investigation established that certain actions or events occurred. A statement that the investigation did not establish particular facts does not mean there was no evidence of those facts. In evaluating whether evidence about collective action of multiple individuals constituted a crime, we applied the framework of conspiracy law, not the concept of collusion. In so doing, the office recognized that the word collude was used in communications with the acting attorney general confirming certain aspects of the investigation's scope and that the term has been frequently invoked in public reporting about the investigation. But collusion is not a specific offense or theory of liability found in the United States Code, nor is it a term of art in federal criminal law. For those reasons, the office's focus on analyzing questions of joint criminal liability was on conspiracy as defined in federal law. In connection with that analysis, we addressed the factual question whether members of the Trump campaign, quote, coordinated, a term that appears in the appointment order, with Russian election interference activities. 
We understood coordination does not have a subtle definition in federal criminal law. We understood coordination to require an agreement, tacit or express, between the Trump campaign and the Russian government on election interference. That requires more than the two parties taking actions that were informed by or responsive to the other's actions or interests. We applied the term coordination in that sense when stating in the report that the investigation did not establish that the Trump campaign coordinated with the Russian government and its election interference activities. The report on our investigation consists of two volumes. Volume 1 describes the factual results of the special counsel's investigation of Russia's interference in the 2016 presidential election and its interactions with the Trump campaign. Section 1 describes the scope of the investigation. Sections 2 and 3 describe the principal ways Russia interfered in the 2016 presidential election. The Mueller Report. Lee in Greensburg, Pennsylvania. Hey, Lee, what's on your mind? I was just calling about Trump's tax returns. Everyone wants to see Trump's tax returns. It's not a law that he shows his tax returns, but why isn't anybody asking about people in Congress or say like Nancy Pelosi, their tax returns, where they've made millions. Their tax returns are all public, Lee. All these people have filed financial disclosure forms, and you can find them all online or on their websites. Nancy Pelosi has laid out her tax returns. Steve in Sebring, Florida. Hey, Steve, what's on your mind? Hey, I had a couple of things, but the first thing is I've noticed a pattern of Trump. When the bank rates go down, he tries to refinance his properties in order to gain the best advantage he can at a lower rate. What's wrong with that? There's nothing wrong with it except for the fact that he wants to put in two more guys on the Fed. And on the Fed, they're supposed to control the interest rate so that inflation or a depression or a recession doesn't happen. If he gets them guys in there and they lower the interest rate down... You're going to see people or uh, banks like Deutsche Bank and maybe even the Bank of Cyprus wanting to lend him money. Right. Wilbur Ross's bank. No, you're right, Steve. When the interest rates go up, he's got a lower rate to pay on the same property he's been mortgaging for three times. Yeah, no, I get it. Up until now, we've all been saying, hey, wait a minute, he wants to put, you know, Stephen Moore and and Herman Cain Cain on the Fed because he wants to lower interest rates to juice the economy to get himself reelected. But you're saying it's not just to get himself reelected, it's so that he can refinance his properties at a lower interest rate and be more profitable. That makes perfect sense. Uh, It makes perfect sense, Steve. You know, I don't know if he's thinking that way. On reflection, I'd be surprised if he's not thinking that way because he seems to be thinking about his own interests all the time under all circumstances. Thanks so much for being with us today, for your calls, your thoughts, your arguments, your debates, the information. Let's just not forget, voting is a duty. Participation in a democracy is required if it's going to function well. And we would like our democracy to function well once again. So please get out there, get active, find something to do. There's always a niche where you can fit in and have a great time. Tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.